as we draw <coughs> as we draw near to the Lord's table, celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion, the, the body and blood of Christ, we are grateful to remember that our Lord instituted this ordinance. That it's meant to remind us of the good news of Jesus. It doesn't save anyone. However, it is a special time that Jesus calls us to celebrate and remember. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 through 29 says this. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the Lord's Supper is a sacred time for believers, and it is for believers who have rested their hope in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So in light of those verses, what I ask is that if you are not a Christian, that you would not partake in the Lord's Supper with us, that only Christians would partake in it. I'm not trying to make you feel isolated, not trying to make you feel alone or that we don't care, but for you to take the Lord's Supper, it's just a cracker and a drink of juice. It's nothing more to you. But for believers, for us who have trusted in Jesus Christ, this is far more than that. It's symbolic of what Christ did for us. It's symbolic of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. For believers, you should examine your heart and make sure that you partake of the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. And if your heart is not right, I would encourage you to abstain from the Lord's Supper until you can uh, make it right. When we take communion, there's four things that I always point us to. First, when we take communion, we look to the cross. The Lord's Supper proclaims to us the salvation that Christ accomplished, finished, and completed on the cross. It proclaims to us a salvation that is not ours to earn, but ours to receive. Second, we look around. The Lord's Supper is not a private devotional experience that just happens to involve a bunch of other people doing the same thing at the same time. The same Christ that saved you saved all the brothers and sisters seated with you. So we rejoice that in gaining Christ as a Savior, we gain his people as a family. Third, we look ahead. The Lord's Supper is a foretaste. It's an appetizer of the coming feast. Jesus is coming back. And fourth, we look inward and back to the cross. The Lord's Supper is not a time for us to compound guilt. If that's how you feel, you're missing the point of the Lord's Supper. It proclaims to us that our guilt is gone, that our debt is paid, that our punishment has been taken, and that our sins are forgiven. So let me invite those that are going to help serve the Lord's Supper to come on up. pray and we'll distribute the elements father thank you for today thank you that we do get to partake in the lord's supper god your supper your communion god i pray that this would be a time where you would help us to remember your gospel the good news of you jesus christ that as we take the bread we remember that you sacrificed your body for us as we drink the juice we remember that you shed your blood for us god not of anything we deserve not because of anything that we've earned but because of your great love that you have for us a love that i don't understand a love that i can't comprehend god a love that if we made the oceans ink and made the skies parchment we would run out of ocean and we would run out of skies before we were able to exhaust the nature of your love 
pray that this communion this morning would remind us of that. It's in your name we pray. Amen. bread is meant to remind us of the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, that he died in our place, that he bore the wrath deserved for us, and that he imputed to us his righteousness. This is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 24. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Dale bought new crackers, and that one threw me off. <laughs> the juice. Man, if this is different. <laughs> it's meant to remind us that by Christ's blood, we have a new covenant. It's not about what we do. It's about what he did on the cross. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five through 26 says this. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, and he said, This is the cup in the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that we do have the bread, that we do have the juice to symbolize uh, your body and your blood. God, help us to always keep the gospel at the forefront of our minds, to be gospel-centered in everything that we do. God, as we finish worshiping through singing, by singing one more song and then hear your word proclaimed, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for that.
Help us to make much of you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 13 is where we'll be this morning. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn there. Can't get that to clip. 1993, the famous philosopher Hathaway posed the question that has haunted Americans uh, and in other countries since then. The question is, what is love? He posed it as a song. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. I mean, we're finishing 2023 on a bang. It's a question that our culture, that our society, that even Christians, we talk about a lot. What is love? Or love is supposed to be this characteristic or this thing that we cling to, that we hold to, and how we define love in our life matters. There's people who who idolize love. There's people who say love is love, and that should matter, and that should trump everything else. There's people who say that God is love, which the Scripture teaches us, but they really mean is that love is God, which is not what the Scriptures teach us. And so we, we come to this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, which is the pinnacle text of scripture on love this is the one that you read at weddings like love is patient love is kind love is the only time you read it but it's at weddings uh, this is the one that gets quoted this is an interesting passage and it's interesting where the apostle paul penned this first corinthians 12 through 14 are on dis- is a discussion on the gifts of the spirit and right in the middle of them there's first corinthians 13 which is about love it's important, it's intentional, and it's uh, something that we need to take hold of and cling to as we walk through this text of Scripture. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to read all the way through the end of verse uh, chapter 13, and then we'll pray and, and dive through. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith so that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give over my body in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. And as for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part what we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I set aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully. As I am fully known. Now these three remain faith, 
hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture that we come to on this day. That it's not an accident, that it's not a coincidence, God, that you didn't mistime it for us, that this was supposed to be last week during Christmas, but we missed it, and, and now it's here. No, God, it's intentional that this is the passage we come to today. So I pray that you would help us to hear your word. Help us to soften our hearts, to be molded and to be shaped by you. Help us to make sure our understanding of love is correct and to understand what love is. God, encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give my body over in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. So Paul is writing this letter, 1 Corinthians, to the church at Corinth, and this church at Corinth has had all sorts of problems. And we've walked through much of the book of 1 Corinthians, much of this letter, and we've seen some of those problems that Paul has described. There's this unity. They're fighting over their favorite teachers, and certain teachers are better than other teachers. If you don't follow this teacher, then you're insuperior to the others who are following that teacher. And Paul comes in and he says, that's nonsense. All of the teachers that they were arguing about were orthodox, biblical, doctrinally sound, theological teachers. They just decided to pick favorites, and Paul's saying that's an issue. It's divisive. It's causing unnecessary divisions within the body, within the church. They put up with sins of people who were blatant and obvious sins, sins that should have been denounced by the church, that even the pagans, Paul tells us, would denounce, but they put up with those sins because that guy could put a big check in the tithe box. All sorts of various things. They, they exalted the gift of tongues up above any other gift. And that's why Paul repeatedly, when he lists these things, he's always kind of de-emphasizing the gift of, of tongues. And we've talked about that for a few weeks. And next week in 1 Corinthians 14, we'll talk a lot about prophecy and a lot about tongues. So I'm going to limit what we say today on it. And so Paul having just talked about unity in the body and diversity within the body, right, that there is one body of Christ and that God has given each person at least a gift. And, and no, so nobody has all of the gift and nobody has none of the gifts, that everybody has been equipped and given gifts by God, and those gifts are meant to be used within the body of Christ, within the church, to make much of King Jesus, to disciple one another, to edify one another, to evangelize the lost, all within this body that God has put together. Not everybody is the eye, not everybody is the hand. Some people are the spleen, and they only see them when they act up. <laughs> Vince is going to text that some somebody in the morning. We saw last week that there's uh, various gifts, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healing, uh, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues. But what we see in a lot of those things is that God often works through the ordinary. We don't have to have the miraculous. We don't have to have all of these crazy things that take place for God to use us. God faithfully and consistently uses faithful and ordinary people. And so that it seems odd that we get to 1 Corinthians 13 in the midst of that. It seems odd until we think about this church at Corinth. 
what this church was doing was they were taking people who had certain gifts and they were elevating them above other people. And so what Paul's telling us, especially in these first three verses, he's saying, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. This is kind of a weird, like, angelic tongues is a weird phrase that people don't really know what it means. And some people will tell you it's kind of the the thing that people say all the time, like when they're speaking in tongues, the charismatics, and it's the jibber-jabber, the chimichanga words, and all of those types of things. That's what they'll argue here but when we see the scripture when we see angels talking we see angels talking to humans multiple times we see it in daniel we see it with mary we see joseph with a dream having angels talk it happens plenty of times we're never given any indication that it's anything other than their language it's not this other thing so you can argue that you can debate that but the point of that is if you can do those things if you speak with perfect grammar you don't need grammarly you don't need spell check If you can do it perfect, if you have every single word you need, and you have the dictionary memorized and the thesaurus memorized, and you can do all of those things perfectly, but you do so without love, the Bible calls you annoying. A noisy gong. A clanging cymbal. Clanging is an onomatopoeia. It's a word that sounds like what it makes. Clang! If you can do those things, if those are the gifts that God has given you and you do so without love, that's how you're seen. Clang, clang, clang. If I have the gift of prophecy and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have faith that I can move mountains. This is Paul using hyperbole. We know it's hyperbole because nobody has all knowledge except for God. And so what Paul's saying is if you have prophecy and you understand every mystery of the universe, if you can understand how a magic eraser works, but you do so without love, if you have the faith that you can move mountains, Jesus talks about faith that can move mountains, but when Jesus does it, he compares it to a mustard seed, which is a tiny little seed. And so Jesus' point is a little bit of faith is what the Lord uses, what the Lord gives. A tiny bit of faith is great and can be used by God in mighty, mighty ways. But what here Paul is saying is he's almost playing on the words. If you have faith enough that you can make the Rockies come closer so that we can go fly fishing in an hour, that would be great, and I would love to talk to you after the service. Paul is saying is if you have those miraculous gifts and you can do those things, but you don't have love, his exact words are, you are nothing. I mean, Paul goes on, if you give away all of your possessions, sell every bit of thing, all that you own, give all of your house goes away, your clothes go away, your vehicles go away, everything you have in the bank account goes away. If you give it away, and it can be to something good, But you do so without love. You gain nothing. He says this phrase, if you give your body over in order to boast. The the wording there is kind of odd in the Greek. It probably means what Paul has in mind is somebody who's giving their body over to be martyred, to be killed. So if you say, I'm going to go die for Jesus Christ, but you do so without love. Paul's saying you've missed the point of it all. You gain nothing. That love is superior. 
that love is greater than the gifts. Now, everybody has a gift. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have at least one. Nobody has all of them, and that's intentional, and that's on purpose. But those gifts aren't given to make us boast or to make us proud or to make us feel like we're better or worse than somebody else. Those gifts are given to us to disciple one another, to share the gospel with people who don't believe in Jesus Christ, to make much of King Jesus, to cultivate a love for one another that flows from the love of God. We know this because of verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What's, what's interesting Right, in, in this little passage, and again, it's one, we, you should have heard that passage before. It's all over the place. I'm going to get a little grammar on you, okay? In English, we translate those as adjectives. They're describing the noun love. In Greek, it's a verb. It's an action word. It's commanding you to do something. So it's saying love is patient, meaning you patiently act like it's not something that is passive sitting around doing you're actively patient which is just seems like a hard thing to compromise or com- comprehend love does things there's a story i read an illustration that that uh, one of abraham lincoln's earliest opponents was a man named edward stanton and edwin called Lin- uh, stanton called lincoln many names he tried to smear his image and 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 uh, smear his perception and so what Edwin would call Lincoln, what he would call him a low and cunning clown, that's a direct quote, and he would say things, he said this about Abraham Lincoln, quote, it was ridiculous for people to go to Africa to see gorillas when they could go find one in Springfield, Illinois, end quote. That sounds like a tweet. Abraham Lincoln never responded to this slander. Instead, he patiently went about his way. We know Abraham Lincoln becomes president of the United States, and when he has a position of secretary of war to fill, do you know who Lincoln makes the secretary of war? Stanton. After Lincoln is assassinated and his body is laying in the Capitol, Stanton visits Lincoln's body, and he says this, There lies the greatest ruler of men that the world has ever seen. What we see is an example in Lincoln's patient love. It's that the patient love won out. Love is patient. Love is kind. Meaning, not mean. Not actively trying to hurt somebody. Not actively trying to do wrong to somebody else. Love is kind. Love does not envy or, or is not jealous. Jealousy is is the sin that's being caught there. If we think about the scriptures, what we know, Adam and Eve were jealous of God, and that appealed to their pride when Satan tempted them. So the first sin is an appeal to the jealousy of Adam and Eve. The second sin that takes place in scripture is when Cain murders Abel because he's jealous of Abel. 
We see that Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery because of jealousy. We see that Daniel is thrown into the lion's den because of jealousy. If you remember the parable of the prodigal son, the older brother resents the younger brother because of the love and the acceptance that the father gives the younger brother when he returns back because he's jealous of that. He wants all of it. They do the same sin. The older brother just stays and waits for his father to die patiently while the younger brother leaves off and runs and tries to squander his wealth away. Jealousy and love cannot coexist because love does not envy love is not boastful meaning you can't be filled up with yourself and love others for someone who is boastful you cannot uh, really appreciate anything unless you put other people down that's not the biblical love love is not boastful love is not arrogant not non-repentant we repent when we love love does not breed contention arrogance breeds contention arrogance is being big-headed where love should be big-hearted love is not rude that when you get to that stoplight in snyder where it goes down to one lane across the bridge you don't cut people off to get no i'm just kidding i won't tell you how many methodists have done that to me but it's a lot It means an unnecessary offense. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is offensive enough. We don't have to add to it. The gospel says you're not enough. I'm not enough. You can't earn your way to God. Your works are nothing compared to what God has done for us. You are not enough in and of yourself. That is offensive enough. We don't have to be jerks about it, too. Love is not rude. It is not self-seeking. There's a story that in a small village in England, there's a tombstone that reads this. Here lies a miser who lived for himself, who cared nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. So another story of a chauffeur who drove up to a cemetery and he asked the caretaker to come to the car because the person he was chauffeuring was an elderly lady who was very sick. And so the, the caretaker comes and he goes to talk to the elderly lady in the back of the car and she introduces herself and she says, I've been sending money to the, cem- the funeral, the cemetery for years to buy flowers to put on my husband's grave. And so I came this day to see these flowers because the doctors have given me very little time to live and the next time I come here I won't be able to see the flowers. Kind of a hard thought. And the caretaker replies, I'm so sorry that you've been sending money for flowers and that surprised the lady. She's taken aback, and the caretaker continued on. I visit patients in the hospital. I go to the mental institutions. I go to those who are desolate, who are hurting, who can't help themselves, and they love flowers. They can see them. They can smell them. The flowers for them are a therapy. It gives them hope. It's a comfort to them. The lady was taken aback by this, and so she motioned to the chauffeur to, to leave, and they drive off. Several months passed, and one day the caretaker looked up, and to his surprise, he saw the ill old lady driving towards him in the cemetery. I don't know if he's surprised because she's going to, like, hit him or that she was driving. She told the caretaker, at first, when you told me what you were doing with the flowers, I resented you. But what you said to me that day, I, I thought about, and I realized you're right. And so now I take flowers to the hospital. 
and it does make the patients happy, and it makes me happy too. And the doctors cannot figure out what made me well, but now I know what made me well. It's that I have something else to live for besides myself. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not irritable. Or, or love is not provoked. When, whenever uh, everyone <coughs> grabs and no one gives, everyone loses. When everyone fights for their own rights, no one can really succeed. The person who is intent on having their own rights magnified over everything else is easily provoked and easily angered as soon as they feel like something wrong is taking place with them. That's not love. Love is not irritable. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. If God so completely and permanently erases our record of sin against him, how much more should we forgive and forget the much lesser sins taking place against us? Have you thought about this? Our sins, the Bible tells us, are cast as far as the east is from the west, not the north and south. The north and south have poles, which means you can stand at the North Pole, and the only direction you can walk from the North Pole is south. Those are directions I can follow. You can stand at the South Pole, and the only direction you can walk is north. According to Wikipedia, there's 12,430 miles between the two poles, assuming the Earth is round. Just threw that in there. What the Bible tells us is that our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. But if the Bible says our sins are cast as far as the north is from the south, that would be 12,430 miles. That's a long ways. It would be difficult for them to come back. However, the east is farther from the west. There's no poles. They're different that they have no starting point and they have no stopping point. That's how far our sins are cast, an immeasurable, infinite distance. If you had an airplane and you had an infinite amount of fuel and, and nothing was going to bar your ability to stop flying for whatever reason, you would simply circle the globe forever and never come to the end from the east from the west. That's how far God says our sins are cast from him. That's what God does with our sins. He takes care of them. He takes our punishment. He forgives us. He wipes our our slate clean, so why would we not do the same for brothers and sisters that sin against us? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness. Love never takes a satisfaction in sin, in our sin or in the sin of others. To rejoice in unrighteousness is to justify unrighteousness. And to justify unrighteousness is to oppose God. Rejoicing in sin is a front to God. What offends God ought to offend us. We should never celebrate it. Now, we don't have to be rude about it, right? Love is not rude. We don't have to be mean. Love is kind. We can be patient, but we cannot support those things that God does not support. Love, biblical love, cannot tolerate evil or rejoice in it in any way. Instead, what the scripture tell us, tells us is love rejoices in the truth. Now look, I'm not claiming to be smart by any stretch of the imagination. 
but when I think of the opposite of unrighteousness, I think the opposite is righteousness. But what Paul tells us in this passage is unrighteousness is what we don't rejoice in. Instead, we rejoice in truth. That Paul sets those two things up opposed to each other, those two things up as opposites. Because righteousness is predicated upon God's truth. You cannot have righteousness if you have no standard of truth. And the standard of truth that we're given is from God's word, from the scripture, that righteousness and truth cannot exist apart from one another. So love cannot tolerate false doctrine. It's not loving to tolerate false doctrine. It's not loving to tolerate false belief. If you and I genuinely and truly believe in the scriptures and we believe that in our natural state we are doomed for an eternal hell where we suffer eternal punishment from God, eternal separation from the things that we love, following after our own desires, following after our own wills with no hope of ever leaving, no trust in anything besides ourselves, in a miserable and eternal state, and we believe that somebody who doesn't believe in the gospel is going there, then it is absolutely not loving to willingly let them go walk down that path maybe a lot of things but it's not love love rejoices in the truth because what somebody believes affects their souls it affects their destinies after death love is kind but love does not compromise truth this is a hard balance to strike so let me warn you you must be settled in your actions in your soul Because likely, if you confront somebody on this, they will not receive you as kind. But God is the ultimate judge, not man. Be in right standing with him, and the rest will work itself out eventually. Paul says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. By all things, Paul's saying, all things that are acceptable in God's righteousness. So love bears all things. The nature of love is redemptive. It wants to buy back, not to condemn, but to save. Not to judge, but to bring back to the Lord. Oliver Cromwell, during his reign in, in England as the protector, had a young soldier that was sentenced to death. And so he, uh, the soldier's fiance pleaded with Cromwell to not put put him to death and not execute him but Cromwell denied it and he said as soon as the curfew bell rings that he was going to uh, execute the, the young soldier and so as the curfew bell cord was pulled what everybody noticed was it was not ringing unbeknownst to everybody the soldier's fiance climbed the bell tower and wrapped herself around the clapper so that the bell would not ring smashes her body, leaves her bruised, cut. I would imagine it broke some bones. But she would not let go until they stopped pulling the cord. When this became known to Cromwell and he saw her, he pardoned the soldier. Love bears all things. It means love doesn't just easily leave. It clings fights for. Love believes all things. Love considers innocent until proven guilty. Love trusts. Love has confidence. And this is hard because trust is hard to earn and it's easily lost. And when you lose trust, it's hard to trust somebody else again because it's difficult. Trust is something that you have to have, but it's so easy to get cold and bitter and callous when we lose trust. But love believes all things. And so when trust is broken, 
Love seeks to heal and to restore. Love hopes all things. This is beautiful. That as long as God's grace is operative, meaning as long as Jesus has not come back yet, as long as we're still living in the earth under the authority of Scripture, under the authority of God, as long as God's grace is still operative, then our sin, human failure, is not final. That death does not have the final word in our life. There are more than enough promises in the Bible to make love hopeful, and this means that your sin does not have the final word. Or that the sin of loved ones does not. So if you have unbelieving parents or backsliding children or an unbelieving spouse or unrepentant people around you that you love, this doesn't leave us hopeless for them. That Jesus, by his grace and by his mercy and by his sovereignty, has extended grace. And so there is hope for them. It's not too late and they're not too far gone. There is hope. The rope of love's hope has no end. So as long as there is life, love remains hopeful. And when our hope becomes weak, what it weak, what it really means is that our love has become weak. There's a story. I used to like dogs before we had Tootsie, and now I just can't stand them. Hachi. It's the modern, more modern-day version of Old Yeller is what it is. It's a story of this dog, and it's based on a true story, and I just know the the Americanized version of the story, but there's this dog that uh, has this owner, and I think they find him in a stray in the movie, and the owner's a professor somewhere else, and so he rides a train to and from work every day. Well, one day while he's at work, the dog follows him to the train station, and then when he comes back, the dog is sitting at the train station waiting for him, and this just becomes their normal routine. Well, one day the, the, the man goes off to work, and he has a heart attack while he's teaching, and he dies. And what becomes phenomenal with the movie, and again, this is based on a true story, is that the dog doesn't leave the train station. In the movie, they make it sound like years. I don't know what the real story is, but the dog was there for days, weeks, months, years. It would not leave. If a dog can do that, if a dog can have hope that somebody will return, we certainly can. Because love hopes all things. Verse 8. No, sorry, love endures all things. Let's cover that one. And at all costs, love endures all things. Love stands against overwhelming opposition and refuses to stop bearing or stop believing or to stop hoping. Love will not stop loving. I try to tell this to my kids, and I, I, I tell them when we get in trouble most of the time, that I don't love them because they obey me, and I don't love them because they, or I don't not love them because they disobey me. My love for them is not tied up in what they do or what they do not do. My love for them is that God has entrusted them to be my kids. God gave them to me. That's why I love you. I love you because you're my daughters, or I love you because you're my son, and that never changes. So my love for them does not end because my love for them is unconditional. Now, that phrase, love is unconditional, gets thrown around and has been reinterpreted too many ways. It doesn't mean that they can do whatever they want and that I'm going to support them and encourage them in whatever they do. Unconditional love there means I'm going to lovingly hold them as closely as I possibly can to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there's nothing they can do to ever push me away.
because after love believes bears uh, after love bears it believes and after love believes it hopes and after love hopes it endures and there is no after for the endurance of love it is the peak of love verse 8 love never ends but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part what we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully that I am fully known. Now these three things remain, faith, hope and love and the greatest of these is love so so paul reminds us love never ends love is the superior way it's greater than all of the gifts and paul walks through not defining what love is but and just saying this is the things that love does and these are the things that love does not do and then he goes to this part where he says love doesn't end and he walks through this text of scripture that's been debated by a lot of different people but it's, it's pretty clear the main point of the text, even if we want to get lost in the details. As for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. And at some point, prophecies, tongues, and the gift of knowledge will come to an end. And we believe, I believe, that, that prophetic gifts, tongues, and, and the gift of knowledge in the sense of knowing things that you wouldn't have been told has ceased, that those are miraculous gifts that God has done away with, and we will talk about some of that next week, so I'm going to just kind of press through. What Paul says is we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the big question hints around what is the perfect? For Morgan, it's her husband. <laughs> Kidding, not any, anywhere close to that. The key is in verse 12. For now we see only a reflection as a mirror, but then face to face. The phrase face to face in Scripture is used in the Old Testament to talk about theophanies, which are the appearances of God in the Old Testament. When Moses goes to the burning bush, he talks about seeing God face to face. When the prophets have visions of God walking in front of them or the temples, they talk about seeing God face to face. What Paul's talking about here is he's talking about the eternal state, heaven. When we dwell and we see God face to face, there's no need for prophecies. There's no need for tongues. There's no need for this knowledge because we're with God face to face. That's what Paul is getting at. For we know in part what we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. What Paul is doing there is he is comparing our current state while we are here to the children that we know. And then when we die and are with uh, the Lord in heaven, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're face to face with God. And we understand the things better than we understand them now. We only see things partially. We see them in a mirror, but the mirror is kind of dim. And we don't get the full picture of everything that we often want to know. This doesn't mean we know everything in heaven. We don't. One of the beauties of heaven is we'll spend an eternity. That is a long time learning more and more about God because he is infinite. We never come to the end of knowing God. 
We know in part, but then we will know in full as I am fully known. All of that is so Paul makes this point in verse 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why? Because when Christ comes back, our faith is complete. Our faith right now is trusting that Jesus Christ saves us and trusting that God is going to come back. But when we die or when Jesus comes back and we're in heaven, we still have faith, but it's different because we see Jesus face to face. Our hope is a hope that's not hoping that maybe Jesus will come back if we act right or maybe this is the end. Our hope is not in something that is uncertain or shaky. Our hope is in the security and the completeness and the trustworthiness that Jesus Christ is going to come back and that if we believe in him and we have faith, we have hope to know that Jesus is going to take us with him and usher us into an eternal kingdom with God where he rules and he reigns perfectly and completely and there is no sin. And that's not a hope that is fickle. It's a hope that is solid. But when we get to heaven, it's a different kind of hope. We hold to a different hope now. We're waiting for that to come. But in heaven, it's there. We're face to face with Jesus. But love is different. It doesn't change. When we see Jesus face to face, it's the same love that we felt from God from the beginning. That's why love is the greatest of these, because love never ends all of the gifts whether we think they've ceased or are continuing now are in superior or less than love that that is foundational to the christian life it is not a coincidence that paul writes first corinthians and then he writes galatians and in galatians he has the fruit of the spirit and the very first fruit of the spirit mentioned is love fruit is hard to fake You can fake it, but it's miserable and it's exhausting. Fruit is produced. It's not something that that, that you can just do over and over again on your own. You can have a tree and you can go tape apples to the tree every single morning and it's going to be exhausting for you unless you take care of the tree and it starts producing that fruit on its own. So what Paul is saying is that if you're a Christian, love is produced in your life and love is superior. It doesn't make you feel boastful over other things. In fact, the love the Bible talks about is not a selfish love, but a self giving love love edifies brothers and sisters in christ love evangelizes the lost because we want them to have what we have but love never enables somebody to continue living in sin which is the lie our culture tells us about love god is love but love is not god We'll be told things like love is love and we need to just let it go. But water is water too. And would you drink water from a toilet bowl? Love is not simply accepting or enabling or tolerating. That's not love. It's wanting what is best for somebody else no matter what that means for you. So Paul, writing to this crowd in Corinthians, says you can have the gifts, and you can have the great gifts that God gives you. And he'll argue in the next chapter, prophecy is the gift you should want over tongues, over anything else, that prophecy is the superior gift. And you can have that gift, and you can have all of the right doctrine, and you can have all of the right theology, but if you have all of those things and you don't have love, you've missed the Christian life completely. He's not belittling gifts. He's not belittling doctrine. He's not belittling theology. He's just saying there are more important foundational things. Don't get the cart ahead of the horse. Love has to be set in its proper place. 
This is to a church with all sorts of divisions in 1 Corinthians. And then this is the passage, when we read it, we think about marriage. Maybe we think about love with our kids. I, I remember watching The Office, the TV show, and they read this passage of Scripture on The Office, which is now streamed all over the place, one of the most popular TV shows ever. They read this passage of Scripture, which is telling to us that if an unbelieving world can read this text of Scripture and not feel any conviction whatsoever, then their idea of love and our idea of love are absolutely different. They're two totally different things things the world's definition of love is being accepted as who you are and our definition of love is giving yourself for the good of somebody else that means we're free when we're saved by jesus christ to live selflessly that we have been bought with a price and we have not we do not need to be fed the lie that in your life you are lacking something like esteem or me time or being true to yourself listen you are not God, and I am not God. And if we're trying to solve our problems by getting more esteem, or, or maybe it's depression or anxiety or anger or whatever thing you want to throw out there, if we're trying to solve those problems by building ourselves up, by looking internally, by trying to fill the gaps within us with things of this world, we will never be fulfilled. You will never in your own self, find the esteem that you need to have full self-esteem. You will never in and of yourself find the approval that you think you need to deserve. You will never in yourself find the security that you want. You will never in yourself find your peace or tranquility that you wish to have or anything else that you feel like in your life is missing. This is where the world lies to us. Only those who by the love of God, which is ultimately displayed on the cross of Jesus Christ, understand this. It's God's love that says, I, I die so that you might live. Do you realize there's no other reason why Jesus would die on the cross? We bring nothing to God. I've gotten really into tying flies, and not one time has God gone, if you'll tie me a pretty good woolly bugger, I'll let you into heaven. It's God's love. He says that when we are centered, or when we are centered on Jesus, when the gospel is our motivating factor, when we understand the cross of Jesus Christ, then and only then does life make sense. Then and only then are we fulfilled. Then and only then does life function the way that God has it functioning for us. Only then is when those things cease. Now we're still going to have issues. We still have this indwelling sin that lives inside of us, and there's a progress to sanctification. So as time goes on, as we mature in Christ as we read the scriptures, as we disciple and evangelize other people, we become less and less, and we echo what John the Baptist says is about Jesus. He must increase, and I must decrease. And our love is displayed in our marriages. It's displayed with our children. But Paul has in mind something different than marriages and children initially. Did you catch that? It's the church. Paul is saying, this is how you be the church. You know others and you be known by them for the glory of God because God loved you first. 
you live your life of gospel centrality because the good news of Jesus is far greater than anything else. It is what we need. It is what the world needs, whether they know it or not. We all know the Bible verse, for God so the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Love is the first fruit mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit. There's far too many Bible verses for me to quote them all about love for you here. First John is a book about love. If you don't have love, you're not a believer in Jesus is what John tells us. We are called to love because we have been loved by God. So if we're Christians, this is like being commanded to breathe. We will willingly obey that command. Because the command to love means we recognize that God loved us first. And we reciprocate that to other people. Vince, I asked him to sing that, that hymn because there's a line in there, a, a, cor- a verse that I want to reread because to me it is one that I just think about often. Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? That's dated language. Let me, let me put it in Ira for you. If all the oceans were ink, we get that? If all of the sky was a piece of paper that you could write on, and if every stick was a pencil or a pen that you could use to write, and every single person, somebody who for their entire life, all day, every day, that's what they were doing. If we were to take the ink from the ocean and go to the sky paper and write for an eternity, everybody always, we would run out of ocean water, and we would run out of parchment before we ever come to the end of God's love. To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Love is an action and love is a verb that you and I, for Christians, are called to do. And we're called to do it because God first loved us, even though we were still sinners. By God's grace, he loved us. And we have nothing to be proud of and we have nothing to be boasted in other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. Thank you for your love. God, something that we do not deserve, something that we cannot earn, something, God, that we can't even fathom often. God, I can't fathom why you would love me. I bring nothing to you. But, God, you do. So, God, help me, help us to worship you more. Help us, God, to feel that love that you have for us and reciprocate it to our brothers and sisters, to live out love, to be the church that you've called us to be, to care for one another more than we care about ourselves. God, you cut through the lies of what our culture is teaching us about love. It's more than a feeling. It's more than an emotion. God, help us to be filled with your love. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would stand with me. 552, help me to sing, number 552. I'm thine, O Lord.